Welcome to Wicked Crime, a Massachusetts true crime podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And a reminder that due to the topics and some of the things that I say, listener discretion is advised. I was originally planning to do an episode on the Kennedys this week, but I'm pushing that back to research more and potentially working on doing it with some special guests. And I'll be visiting Martha's Vineyard soon, so I'd like to maybe get some insight on the whole Chappaquiddick thing. But in any case, you can look forward to an episode on the Kennedy curse and also just one on Ted Kennedy and the incident on Chappaquiddick later down the road. But today I have a case for you that's sort of a popular topic among web sleuths because it's just so weird. And that is the disappearance of Joan Risch in 1961. Joan Risch was born Joan Bard to Harold and Josephine Bard on May 12, 1930. There's not a lot that we know about her early life except for a few troubling details. When Joan was nine, both her parents died in what has been described as a suspicious fire on February 23, 1939. The family was living in Mountain Lakes, New Jersey at the time, and Joan was spending a few days with relatives before the President's Day weekend. And there's not a ton of info on why the fire was considered suspicious, but Redder user Dan Pesch actually found two newspaper articles about the fire, one from the Lancaster New Era and the other that was published in the Boston Globe in 1963, which was 24 years after the fire took place and two years after Joan disappeared. And I'm going to put the links for these on my website, as always, at wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. And the first account was pretty cut and dry. It said that the Bards both died in a fire from smoke inhalation and Harold was found with the phone in his hand while Josephine was sitting in a chair. And it said that they didn't have a cause for the fire at the time, like there was no reason they said to why it started. But the Boston Globe account is a little weirder. It gives some statements from Arthur Hamilton, who resigned from the Mountain Lakes Fire Department right before the fire happened, but he knew the details because he was still buddies with the other firefighters. What makes the fire suspicious was that the Bards had a German Shepherd who was known to be like a fairly loud dog and would bark whenever strangers got near the house. And when the firefighters searched the home after the fire, they found the dog wrapped up in a blanket in the basement and they believe it had been, in their words, put to sleep. Which makes it sound like someone either might have killed it or knocked the dog out before the fire started. So the question is, who put the dog in the basement? Was it someone who came in and set this fire and wanted to make sure the dog was out of the way? Was it one of the bards who had planned to set the fire? Was it just Harold and he tried to call for help once he realized that he shouldn't have done that? And is that why Joan wasn't there at the time? Either way, this is all we know and it definitely does seem suspicious if this detail about the dog is true. So poor Joan gets sent to live with foster parents. Now, some accounts say she went straight to live with her aunt and uncle instead, but it's a pretty widely accepted fact that during this time, Joan was sexually abused, and it's believed it was by her foster father. But this isn't really confirmed either. Still, losing your parents in a fire couldn't have been an easy thing on this little girl, who then possibly had to deal with the trauma of abuse on top of all of it. But she ended up going to Wilson College in Pennsylvania and graduated with a degree in English literature in 1952. Her dream was to work as an editor, and she started first as a secretary for a publishing company and eventually worked her way up to editorial assistant at Harcourt Publishing and later went to Thomas Y. Crowell Co., both in New York City. And it was here she met Martin Risch in 1956, who was an executive at the company. And there's some accounts, too, that say they met at a Harvard like football game. So kind of take that with a grain of salt. A lot of things in this case are like, one story here, 
another story here and they're different. So either she met Martin at a football game or he was an executive at the company, which makes sense with his career later on. So the two of them eventually get married and they move to Ridgefield, Connecticut, where Joan gave up on her job in order to become a housewife. They ended up having two children, first Lillian and then David, and they moved to Lincoln, Mass. in April 1961 so Martin could work as an executive at the Fitchburg Paper Company. And he was frequently out of town on business. This left Joan home to care for four-year-old Lillian and two-year-old David by herself. Those that knew Joan said that she was happy with her life and planned to become an English teacher once her kids were a little bit older. But the big thing people have speculated is that maybe she wasn't that happy. And she didn't like that she had to quit her editing job to raise her kids because there goes Martin flying back and forth to New York on business, leaving her alone. And it was one of those trips that he was on when something very strange happened back at home. On October 24th, 1961, while Martin was away in New York City, 30-year-old Joan disappeared. It started as a very normal day. She took David across the street to Barbara Barker's house so that she could watch him while Joan and Lillian went to a dentist appointment and then ran a few errands. When they got home around 11 a.m., the milkman, postman, and dry cleaner all saw Joan that day and all said that everything seemed normal and they were quickly ruled out as being involved. Joan made her kids lunch, she put David down for a nap, and then at 1 p.m., Barbara brought her four-year-old son Douglas over to play with Lillian, which was pretty normal. They did that a lot. They played in the yard while Joan was doing some yard work. But then around 1.55, Joan took Douglas and Lillian across the street and put them in the Barker's yard to play on the swings, and she didn't tell Barbara she was doing this. 30 minutes later, around 2.25, Barbara sees Joan across the street in her driveway, wearing a trench coat and holding her arms outstretched in front of her like she was chasing after something, which Barbara assumed was David, like maybe he got out when he was running amok. She did say that she saw something red, and many people jumped to the conclusion that Joan was holding something red out in front of her, and no one has been able to agree on what that was. Barbara thought that maybe it was David wearing a red coat. At 3.45, Barbara took Lillian back home because she planned to go shopping in Concord. Since Joan's car hadn't left, she figured that she was probably still home. And I have to guess that she just maybe like opened the front door and let Lillian in or Lillian managed to do that herself because as of that time, Barbara didn't think anything was wrong. But when she returned home from shopping at 4.15, Lillian came up to her and said, Mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered in red paint. So you can see where this is going to go. Barbara goes over and sees that it's blood, which is all over the kitchen. The telephone was ripped off the wall and put into the trash can, which had been moved from under the sink to out onto the kitchen floor. A table had been flipped over, and there was a book open to a list of emergency numbers on the counter. And David was upstairs crying because he needed his diaper changed. So this is a chaotic scene, especially since Joan is nowhere to be found. Barbara called the police, and they came to check everything out. Altogether, it really wasn't that much blood. It was only like half a pint, and there are traces of it in the master bedroom, the hallway, and David's room, and a few are actually fingerprints. On the kitchen floor, it looked like somebody had tried to clean it up with some paper towels and a pair of David's overalls. There's also blood that leads out the back door and to Joan's car, but then stops, almost like she got into a vehicle. The blood gets tested, and it's type O, which is Joan's blood type. And remember that this is the 60s, so that's about all they can go on. They do take samples of the fingerprints, which according to the Trail Went Cold podcast, they are later confirmed that some are Jones and some aren't Jones, which means that there is a very good chance that someone else is in the house. 
but they run the prints and they can't find a match, so that's not exactly helpful either. Another thing that pointed to someone else being there was that there were a couple of beer bottles in the trash, and according to Martin, they shouldn't have been there. The only thing that he knew that was supposed to be in that trash was a liquor bottle that him and Joan had finished the night before. So because there were these bottles too, people tend to think that someone had come over and had them. Also at about 325, one of Joan's neighbors was on her way home from school and she saw a dirty blue sedan parked in the Rish's driveway. And this wasn't Joan or Martin's car. And he said that he didn't know anyone with a car like that. Police later sort of wrote off that detail and claimed it was probably an undercover cop car. But it wouldn't have been spotted there at 325 because police didn't even show up until right before 5 p.m. And since the trail of blood ended in the driveway, it's likely that if someone was at the Rish house, they came in that blue sedan and Joan left in it, whether on her own volition or not. So all this was weird enough as it was. But then there were two possible sightings of Joan that don't make really any sense at all. So a number of people driving by said they saw a woman matching Joan's description on both Route 2A and Route 128. She had a handkerchief on her head and was said to be clutching her stomach as if in pain and it looked like her legs might have been bloody and that she was disoriented. People have speculated that maybe Joan got really disoriented and wandered away from her home, but 128 wasn't very close to where she lived. She was allegedly spotted there between 315 and 330 and then again at 425. But if you look at Google Maps where the Rich House was, which was on Old New Bedford Road, which the house is gone now. It's just like a string of forest that they retook for a Revolutionary War park. But if you look where the house was, in relation to Route 2A, it, it wasn't that far. Like, she probably could have walked it, but would she be able to walk this far when she was injured and disoriented? And where along Route 2A was she? So it's like a whole big, well, was she there? Was she really not there? Was this Joan? Wasn't Joan? And on the Trail Went Cold podcast, they talk about how there's a chance that Joan could have fell into a construction area that was on 128 at the time and maybe she got hurt or she died and they buried her and no one knew and in that case I don't think she'll ever be found what really upsets people is that no one tried to help this woman whether it was Joan or not but I, I kind of see that in two ways one nowadays we all have cell phones on us so to call for help is nothing if you don't want to get out cool no problem let me call tell someone and it's out of my hands and two maybe people were just scared of this like strange bloody disoriented woman there are people who will always pull over and help someone. And thank God we have people like that out there. But I think there's also a large number of people who don't, whether it's because you're scared or it's not your problem or you think someone else will help. But we don't know if anyone helped that woman that day or not. And therefore, we don't know if it was Joan or not, because maybe it wasn't. This sighting definitely complicates the whole story, though, because seeing her on either road at that time was kind of putting a whole wrench in the whole she was taken by someone from her house story. Because if she was taken, then how would she end up just wandering around on a road? Another strange detail was that they found a coat hanger resting on top of Joan's car. Now, it could have been the dry cleaner who maybe dropped it. That's a thing. But this detail might have been where this weird theory develops that Joan had been pregnant and the blood that was everywhere was from an abortion. And there really isn't any kind of solid proof, but this is a favorite theory among those online. This wasn't mentioned in any of the official reports, but you do have to remember, too, that this was like a taboo topic at the time, and abortion was illegal all over the country, so maybe they didn't want to mention it or consider it. People have also wondered if they had the means to determine if all this blood came from her uterus or not, which they can do that today, and so that's also, like, unconfirmed. 
I don't love this theory of Joan giving herself an abortion because why did she suddenly decide at that moment in time that needed to happen? Like what, you're going to like just pop the kids over to your friend's house and perform surgery on yourself on a whim. No, that doesn't make any sense to me. And if people argue that maybe she used this coat hanger, then why would it be on the car? She wasn't about to do this thing outside and you'd figure that it would also have blood on it, which there's no mention of that. But this is why people think she was spotted in pain on the road. Like she was really hurt and giving herself an abortion had been so harrowing on her that she wandered off because she was disoriented. But even then, what happened to her after that? She fell into this construction zone and was buried alive or died? It would just take such a bizarre string of events to happen in a row for this to make sense. But sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. I will definitely admit that. But if you want to maybe suppose that a doctor of some kind came over in the sedan, we could maybe think about that. Um, maybe we're getting somewhere. Maybe she had an appointment with him and he called and said he was coming over. So Joan was like, oh shit, I got to move these kids. And she took them next door. And then maybe this procedure didn't go as planned. Though you'd hope this guy wouldn't be like kicking back a couple of beers before he operates on you. The theory that a lot of people believe is that during this procedure, something did go wrong and the doctor was the one who ripped the phone off the wall so Joan couldn't call for help since he was performing an illegal operation. He then took Joan with him where she later died in his care and disposed of the body. Now, this is assuming a lot of shit, right? We're assuming that Joan was pregnant and no one knew, not even her husband, though people have wondered if she had a lover. We're assuming that she called a doctor who was comfortable to come to her house on a random day in the afternoon and do this for her. And then we're assuming that the same person was just cool with like kidnapping her or taking her and disposing of her body. And that's a lot. Is it possible? Maybe. Does it seem far-fetched? Totally. The other option people give is that, yes, she was pregnant, but she was having a miscarriage, and that was why she rushed the kids away to Barbara's house, because she knew something was wrong. And people have said that that's what she was holding, that was what the red thing was, but I think that is just so unlikely. Like, maybe it was like this bloody pair of overalls that was found on the kitchen floor, and that's why she was holding it away from her, or it could have been anything. And you have to subscribe to the whole she got disoriented and left theory here too, in which case it's still a mystery what actually happened to her after that. But if she was having an affair and this was another man's child, then you have to consider the idea that he showed up and was part of the second half of the story. Either she tried to give herself an abortion or she miscarried and then he did something to her or with her. It would explain the beer cans and the fingerprints that weren't hers, but... Considering the fact that the pregnancy theory is entirely just out of left field, it's much more reasonable to believe that someone either showed up randomly and harmed Joan, she knew he, and we'll say he, although we don't, we don't know that for sure, was coming over and something went wrong, or she planned this entire scene to look like something happened to her. A big reason why people think that was a possibility was because about 16 months after Joan's disappearance, a local reporter was researching in the library and came across Joan's name in a book she was looking at. And it was The 27th Wife by Irving Wallace, which was a fictional story about Brigham Young, whose 27th wife disappeared. And Brigham Young was a real person and a Mormon, and he had like 55 wives over the course of his life, but none of them disappeared. But anyway... Because they found Joan's name in that book that she had taken out, the library committee decided to start searching for any other book she'd taken out that summer to see if there was like a clue, like what was she reading? And they found that she had taken out 25 books all about murder, unexplained disappearances, and voluntary disappearances. One of which was a book called Into Thin Air, which was about a woman who planned her own disappearance and left behind some blood and a towel, which 
Kind of sounds familiar, right? But Martin swore that this didn't seem weird to him because Joan liked the good suspense novel. And for people who are really into true crime disappearances, like all of us here listening and discussing this, maybe this kind of library history would make total sense. But when you disappear under mysterious circumstances, it starts looking a little fishy. So this is why people have wondered if maybe she actually planned her disappearance. Much like the book in the movie Gone Girl, which you should totally watch if you haven't seen it or read it. It's a great book. Joan could have staged this whole scene to look like she was hurt and kidnapped. There wasn't a ton of blood, just enough to look bad. The table was flipped over and the phone was ripped off the wall to show that there was some kind of struggle. Maybe she let Barbara see her because it just adds another layer of confusion to this whole thing. But it's also pointed out that she left without her pocketbook and she probably only had all of like $10 on her that day after shopping. So unless she was hiding more money somewhere, she didn't seem to have anything to live off of. But wouldn't that be exactly what you would want everyone to think? And once again, maybe there was another person involved here and they planned this together or they helped Joan get away. Maybe even the other fingerprints were put there on purpose. It seems like a missed opportunity to me to not have looked closer at this blue sedan because it's very likely that Joan was taken in that car. And I mean, we've seen other cases where like police are tracking a vehicle um, to Europe to try and see who it belonged to. So for them to just write it off as a undercover cop car doesn't seem right to me. And maybe she even purposely wandered around Route 2A and 128 to have people see her and make things more confusing. But then like, what would her plan have been if someone stopped to help? So probably not. And it would be kind of a weird genius move to do that. But Joan might not have been happy as everyone thought she was. And like giving up her career to become a housewife maybe just wasn't it. And she was looking for a way out. Or she met someone who she fell for and they ran away together. The only reason I can think of that she would try and run away in the middle of the day, during the day, was because Martin was gone. And it was easy to have Barbara watch her kids without it seeming suspicious. But I think a lot of people's default when people go missing tends to be, well, they could have ran away and start a new life. And like, how common is that really? And I get that in 1961, it might have been possible, but Joan's life, was it really that oppressive or upsetting that she had to stage a crime scene to escape it? I feel like probably not, intriguing as that idea is. And shit, I'd love for Joan to have like started a new life. She's living it up under some new name, writing novels, being fabulous. But unfortunately, I don't think that's what happened. The most likely scenario is that someone came into her house, either with or without her knowledge, and hurt her. There's actually some PDF out there which has a ton of info on the entire crime scene, but for whatever reason, my laptop just refuses to open it. I'm going to post a link for you guys and maybe you'll have luck. And I found another PDF which seems like it's the same thing, but then I opened that on my phone and like all these pop-ups were happening and I just got out of there. So if you want to check that out, feel free. Um, But where I'm going with this is that the person who compiled this PDF had a very strange take on what actually happened. They supposed that someone had actually been hiding in Joan's house all day waiting for her to hurt her, and Joan realized this was happening, so she quickly brought the kids to Barbara's yard and went back to deal with it and maybe call the police or something, and there was an altercation, and she was killed or taken. The strangest thing about this theory is that they list William Barker, Barbara's husband, the neighbors, as the intruder. And then they say that he took Joan out to their land they had in Lexington, and that is where he buried her body. Now, there is like absolutely no reason to think that William Barker did this. And a lot of people who really like this PDF 
they don't really agree with the conclusion because it's weird. And it will only ever be proven if that land gets dug up, which, like, without probable cause, that's not going to happen. Despite all these theories, I do tend to lean towards that there was someone in her house and they hurt her. It's not out of the question to believe that Joan may have had a lover and maybe he called and said he was coming over. And so this was why she rushed the kids over to Barbara's. It would explain why the beer was in the trash and maybe he came and like had a few drinks. They got into some kind of fight and it got violent. He then took Joan with him, which is still crazy that like all these nosy neighbors didn't see this part. A man might have shoved her into a car, but no one saw that. There just was a car. And maybe she was reading all these true crime books because she was afraid of this man and trying to get away from him, not her life with Martin. But you can also suppose that there could have been someone hiding in the house or just showed up and was looking to start some shit. Maybe he drank the beer after he hurt Joan, because that's a thing. I work with a guy who used to work in the prison system, and he said that there was a man in jail who raped and murdered an entire family and then just cooked himself breakfast. Now that's the kind of person who should scare you, that someone can commit a crime, knock back a few beers, completely unbothered, and not worry that they need to get the hell out of there. But there's also the possibility that Joan herself drank those beers, which isn't something that gets talked about too often. The problem with the theory that someone else was there is that, like, it would make sense with the whole fingerprint in the car thing, it's that damn sighting of her on the road. And my issue with this is like, wouldn't there have been more blood to be found if she just like walked away from her house? The blood trail stopped in the driveway, which makes it seem like she got into a car. But it also wasn't really a lot of blood. So maybe the wound just kind of like stopped bleeding. And if she was out here wandering around disoriented, does that mean that she just, she did fall into a ditch or a construction site and just die there? And it's like none of these theories can happily fit together. And that's the biggest problem. But I do think someone was there and something did happen. I even wonder if the clothes hanger was like her trying to break into her own car. Or maybe someone else trying to get into her car. Then you also have to think about the fact that the blood they found was type O, which was Joan's type. But what if it wasn't even her blood? What if she attacked someone, freaked out, and then left with them, too scared to come back? Which is very unlikely, but like, I think you get the point. There are just a number of things that could have happened in a row. And without Joan's body, we can never even be completely sure that she's dead. Martin believed for the rest of his life that she was actually alive out there somewhere and refused to list her as deceased. He was convinced that she had some kind of mental breakdown that gave her amnesia and she just wandered away, not even remembering who she ever was. Which, considering some of our theories out there, it is a strange one. But he might have known more about her childhood and her trauma than we do. And we already know she went through a lot of shit that probably wasn't so great on her mental health. Another kind of sad little detail of this whole story is that her son David now lives in essentially a nursing home and I could find two instances of him actually disappearing from the facility for a few days. Once in 2017 when he was 58, he went missing on October 17th and wasn't found until the 20th in Beverly. This happened again on January 4th of this year when he was 61. He went off his meds and left Vero Health Center in Watertown but was found the next day. And it's said that he suffers from memory impairment, so it might just be like Alzheimer's or dementia. And it's also possible that this David Rich isn't actually Joan's son, but the age and the location both match up. And you do have to wonder, even at two years old, what David might have seen. Maybe him wandering off is him like subconsciously trying to find his mother. But it's just kind of like a sad anecdote that he too has gone missing, but thankfully he's been found each time. But still, after all these years, we have no real idea what happened to Joan that day. 
Do you have any theories? Do you think she fell into a ditch or was murdered by a scared abortionist or maybe was taken by aliens? Because every theory seems to just have a lot of weird holes. And if you're really interested, I would recommend taking a Reddit deep dive or a Web Sleuths deep dive because there's a lot of interesting insight from people who claim to have lived in Lincoln or just have different theories or ideas who've done a lot deeper research on the case, like walking around the area where she went missing, that kind of stuff. So that is the disappearance of Joan Risch. I had a lot of really good sources for this episode, the main one being the Trail Went Cold podcast, a few Reddit threads I'll list, Morbidology, Historic Horrors, Soapboxy, and some others that I'll list on my website for you to check out. And even though Joan has been missing all of this time, it doesn't mean that there can't be someone out there who has some information. So if for some reason someone out there listening does, please contact the Lincoln Police Department at 781-259-8111. You can find me on my website at wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. I think you hear me say that enough, but if anyone's new, wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. On Twitter at wicked underscore crime, Instagram at wickedxcrime, and you can also find me on Facebook if you just search wicked crime. Music in this episode is by a man who has not disappeared under mysterious circumstances, Kevin McLeod. As always, take care of yourself, look after yourself, take your vitamins, and rejoice. The spooky season is nearly upon us. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in the next one. Bye.